0: three weeks we've been talking about different aspects of the Christmas history. I like to stay rather than story. Uh, The first week we talked about what? This was a long time ago. This is in November. Shepherds and angels, right. Uh, The second week we talked about the Magi. And the last week we talked about Mary and Joseph. So this week we talk about Jesus. I mean, this is my favorite one. This is exciting. Uh, We'll talk about Jesus next week too, so it's kind of a two-part thing. So today we're going to talk about Jesus, and in particular what was here in Matthew chapter 2. Just one thing to think about before we get into it. Uh, some people like suspenseful movies. You don't know, it's in, like maybe a little scary, uh, like Charlie Brown Christmas. You don't know, is he going to get a tree? Is he not going to get a tree? Yeah, I mean, imagine a movie, maybe some, some friends are hiking through the woods. They've got big plans for the hike. They're going to hike through the woods, and they've got their packs on. They've got their gear, and sunny day, and they're enjoying the time together and telling stories, and they're looking at the wildlife and the trees, and they stop by a cool spring and get a drink of water. Nothing better than a, a drink of water from an ice-cold spring in the mountains. I mean, am I right? They're wandering, and their, their goal that day is to get up to a high mountain lake where they're going to do some fishing for the afternoon and then camp out. Nothing could be better. So, they're walking through the woods, and then all of a sudden, if it's a movie... The scene changes and you hear a, a twig snap up in the woods, right? Sasquatch? I don't know. And then right in the frame, it's just showing, the right in the frame, just a big bear paw just steps onto the ground. And then it goes to commercial, generally, right? And then it builds all this suspense. Like, what's going to happen? Is the bear going to eat the hikers? Is it even a bear? Maybe it's a guy in a bear costume? We don't know. But there's all kinds of suspense that's built into attention. At, at the beginning, it looked like everything it was just going to be a great walk. And, and now, all of a sudden, now, what could possibly happen? Matthew chapter two in the section where this is, this is exactly what Matthew is doing for us. The story and, and the narrative of Christ's birth up to this point is almost romantic. The virgin is with child. Angels have appeared to Joseph. Angels have appeared to uh, Zechariah. Angels have appeared to Mary. Mary is pregnant, and Mary, Mary's cousin visits her. And her baby, John the Baptist, jumps in his womb because he's so excited to be near the, the baby Jesus who was in Mary's womb. And it's just everything is, is happening. The shepherds visit, and the Magi visit, and it seems like everything's just hunky dory. And then all of a sudden, here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, there's a snap in the woods. We say, wait, not, everything's not okay. This isn't going to be a romanticized tale of faith and victory that just is, goes off without a hitch. Something is awry here, Matthew would have us understand. The title of today's message is very complicated, so you want to get a pencil out. The title of today's message is, Jesus. That's the whole thing. Let's look at three ways in which uh, Matthew builds the tension on purpose to show us the redemptive work of Christ. Verses 13 through 15. Jesus lives our lives flawlessly. Jesus lives our lives flawlessly. Look with me again at the text. The angel appeared to Joseph and said, listen, Herod wants to kill the baby. You need to flee from here to Egypt. Go there and escape. And this should a little bit rattle our cage because when Israel came out of Egypt, they were told one thing to do, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, Israel, what are you to not do? Do not go back to Egypt. In fact, when Jeremiah was alive, he told the people because they were being invaded and everybody said, we're all gonna die, let's get out of here, let's go to Egypt. And Jeremiah said, if you flee from here to Egypt, War, disease, pestilence, it will follow you there. And that's precisely what happened. And so at first, this seems a little counterintuitive. They were told never to flee to Egypt. Why is Joseph being told to flee to Egypt with the baby Jesus and with Mary? Because this isn't a flight from harm, this is a flight to fulfill the work of God in the people of Israel that the people of Israel never accomplished. Because the prophet had said, his people will come out of Israel. Do you remember the story of Israel coming out of Egypt? Of course, you've seen the movie with Charlton Heston. They come out of Egypt with all the plagues and they walk through the, the, the Red Sea with a, a miracle. And then they're, they're fed with manna and they're fed with quail and God leads them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And they receive the law on Mount Sinai. But, so because God was so visibly apparent to them, they followed God flawlessly and never grumbled and never complained and never disobeyed and, because He was right there. I mean, that, their, their, whole, their whole history is a, is a journey from Egypt to the promised land that was marked by grumbling, marked by complaining, marked by disobedience, characterized by no trust and no rest whatsoever in the good and faithful promises of God. And now, Joseph is taking Jesus there, as Matthew is going to show us, to show us what that journey should have looked like, a journey of faith and faithfulness, a journey of obedience and propriety to the covenant promises of God. Later on in Jesus' life, He's going to be called into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. What was the primary complaint of the Israeli people when they were in the wilderness. There's no food. And what was the primary condition of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights? He didn't eat because he had the Lord. He had the Father with him. You may not realize, but the story that we're talking about today, Matthew chapter 2, is only one chapter away from that story. It seems like, well, that's way later in the book of Matthew? No, it's Matthew 4. It's just coming right up because Matthew wants us to see in Jesus the way Israel ought to have been, the one who came out of Egypt uh, in obedience to the Father and the one who walked through the wilderness in obedience to the Father, the fulfillment of God's purposes for His people. I don't know if you remember Joseph way back in Genesis. He was sent to Egypt as well. Do you remember? He was sent to Egypt as a slave and he was able to obtain power and wealth by God's hand in his work in Egypt. And so then God used foreign wealth to provide for the necessities of his people. Similar to Christ, who the wealth of the magi provided for their needs as they traveled to Egypt and lived out of any place where he could earn a living and anything, they they provided. The the parallels between Jesus coming out of Egypt and Israel coming out of Egypt are numerous. And the purpose is for us us to understand is Jesus is the fulfillment of the work that God was intending to do through his people. Jesus does the work uh, of being called by God perfectly and flawlessly. How often did Jesus make a mistake? He never. He obeyed God holding completely the entirety of his life with no grumbling and no complaining. Jesus lived the life Israel ought to have lived. He he took the journey Israel ought to have taken in the manner in which Israel ought to have done it. He fulfilled the purposes of Israel flawlessly. and And so God said this. This is the end of verse 15. The Lord said, out of Egypt I called my son, and that prophecy was intended, was written for the people of Israel. And Matthew is saying, but it's fulfilled and completed here by Christ himself. Well, how does this work? Let me try to illustrate how, what we're talking about here if you're completely confused. If you're not, I am, so we're good. Anybody ever have an Etch-a-Sketch? Remember Etch-a-Sketch? Kids nowadays probably have one, but it's on an iPhone. It's like an Etch-a-Sketch app, which is completely counter to the whole point of the Etch-a-Sketch. Uh, my children go, well, I don't know where it showed up. I found an Etch-a-Sketch in the house. Can you have an Etch-a-Sketch in the room and not pick it up? I don't. So anyway, I'm sitting there twisting knobs. And I said I wanted to try and make a circle. Have you ever tried to make a circle with an Etch-a-Sketch? You have to close one eye. I discovered it's very, very difficult. So what do you do when you start Etch-a-Sketching and you make a mistake? Hold it up over your head. It doesn't work if it's not over your head. Erase it. Okay. Okay, we'll do this again. What am I talking about here? See, what we think is well, God had the etch a sketch out and he was using the people of Israel and it got all messed up. He got all, the etch a sketch looked like you and I would do it. Just a bunch of scribbles. A circle looked more like a, an amoeba. And so God, he took the etch a sketch out and shook it over his head and said, okay, I'll start over with Jesus. But here is what we have to understand on how Matthew is telling this story that's not what happened. What God is doing is He is taking that completely screwed up etch-a-sketch, and now He's going to weave through it the history of Christ, the life of Christ, and when Jesus is done meandering through the broken history of Israel, you're going to go, holy cow, it's a picture. So what Jesus is doing is not redoing what ought to have been. He's taken all the brokenness of all of human history, and specifically the Israel, history of Israel, and through his life, he's going to bring it all to a purpose, and it's going to be a picture that God had always intended to draw. The glory of God revealed not uh, in spite of the brokenness of his people, but as a result of the brokenness of his people, it gives his son the most glory to redeem it. So Jesus writes a new ending to the story and it turns out to be better than anybody could have possibly imagined. Why do I say this? He lives a a perfect life and he connects all of the dots that we could never have possibly connected and the end result is not error but the beauty of God's glorified work done in Jesus. Here's the point. If Jesus wasn't going to use all of human history and, and bring it to something beautiful, to bring Him great glory, here's what He ought to have done. And this will rattle your cage, but I want you to think about it. Why didn't He die in heaven? Why do He have to come here and do it? The accommodations are nicer in heaven. I mean, if He was just erasing history and starting over, there was no need for Him to come here. He could have been born in, in, in the hospital in heaven if they have such a thing. They don't. And then then he could just just die there. He wouldn't have to go through all the trials and tribulations. But see, the point is he had to come here because he had to connect all the dots of the history that God's been writing through all of time. He had to take all the brokenness, all the disobedience, all the shameful deeds, all the lack of faith, all the distrust, and Jesus had to take through his perfect life, tie all of those things together so it becomes a perfect picture of the plan of God. And he had to come here to do it. God hasn't given up on us. He hasn't given on up on this world he created. He hasn't given up on his people. Jesus going into Egypt and returning out of Egypt to fulfill the purposes of God says this, and this is to boil it all down to one idea. God says this, you cannot ruin what I am doing. Listen, you might want to write that one down. You cannot ruin what I am what I am doing. I mean, think about your own journey in faith with the Lord. How many times have you said, there's no coming back from this one? There is no way that I am coming back from this one, or I hope I can keep this a secret so nobody finds out because then there will be no coming back from this one. Jesus coming out of Egypt. Redeeming the purposes of God for Israel coming out of Egypt shows us we cannot ruin what He is doing in our life. Every instance of disobedience, every instance of a lack of faith, every time that we grumbled and complained and we didn't rest and we were full of anxiety and fear and sin, He's going to take all of that, tie it all together with the work of Christ. Paid for on Calvary, empowered by the resurrection, and reveal it to us at the end of time. And we'll go, Holy cow, you were doing that? I thought I was messing your thing up. He's going, No way. I took care of it. It's not going to be like in the middle, there's like a good part, and then there's the rest, of what we did, you know? He's going to take all of our life, and He's going to bring Himself the most glory through it. You can't ruin what God is doing in your life. I'm not challenging you to try. Hear me. Some of you said, can't remember what he's doing? Challenge, accept it. But I think there's a point here to understand what we see Jesus in doing through the people of Israel. I mean look at all of the Old Testament. You have, have you ever read the Old Testament and said, what were they thinking? And you realize the Old Testament in Christ, he said that's none of that's wasted. None of that's wasted. Every second and every moment, I'm going to redeem into my purpose to reveal who I am and the glories of my kingdom. Jesus lives our life in us flawlessly. We cannot ruin what he is doing in our life. I know we all do this, but I should, I'm just going to say it because I do it too, so that way you don't think I'm just being an accusatory. There's no room or there ought not to be any room in the Christian vocabulary for this phrase, if only I hadn't, if only I would have. Through the course of your life, have we said that a few times? In Christ, there's no need for the if-onlys because Jesus takes all of the if-onlys and turns them into done, completed, glory to the Father, redeemed by the cross, Jesus lives our life flawlessly. You can't ruin what He is doing. Just as Israel couldn't ruin the purposes of God in coming out of Egypt, Jesus uses that and redeems it, and the redemptive plan of God comes out of Egypt Himself. Out of Egypt, I have called my Son. Jesus lives our life flawlessly. Second, verses 16 through 18. Jesus renders powerless the enemy. We empowered. Jesus renders powerless the enemy. We empowered. So the Magi had snuck out of town without telling Herod where Jesus was, but Herod had figured out that he was somewhere in the region of Bethlehem, and so he made an order. Everyone, all the boys two years and younger, ought to be killed. There's no other place in History where this is recorded So there's no historical books outside of the Bible Where you can find this occasion And the main reason is because Bethlehem wasn't a huge town Even the vicinity around it It was a small town you know, Six, twelve, maybe twenty boys Would have been slaughtered How do you say this without sounding cold It's an awful occurrence But it wouldn't have made the national media Rome killing twenty people They call that a Tuesday in the Roman world. This is what Rome did. So, it's not surprising that there's uh, no other historical record of it. But we look at this story and what we see is the, the fingerprints of the devil all over it. Satan has been using this particular agenda item through all of human history. Adam and Eve fall in the garden. Succumbing to the deceptions of the devil and the desires of their own corrupt hearts, and they murder all of humankind. And then they have two children, and one of them murders one of them. And it starts, and it never ends. The devil uses throughout all of human history, uh, especially in the Old Testament, crimes against the innocent and the impoverished and the most vulnerable. From Pharaoh calling for all the Jewish babies to be cast into the Nile to Israel in the Promised Land, sacrificing their babies to the god Molech. This is the primary goal of the devil. Kill the babies. Why? So the Redeemer cannot be born. Referring back to Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God says this regarding the enmity between the serpent and her seed. He says he the seed the son of eve will crush his head but what will the serpent do he will bruise his heel the, the enemy spends all of the old testament seeking to destroy the redemptive work of god through the seed of, of adam and eve and then through abraham and through all throughout all of history and the devil is working hard throughout the Old Testament to derail the plan of God to bring Jesus here. You ever wondered why it seems like every story you read in the Old Testament, someone's barren? You ever notice that? Seems like every other page somebody can't have a baby. And it's a tragedy. It's terrible. The heartache and pain that that brings. But nonetheless, the, the devil is not able to stop the woman from having the son Jesus. And his head will be crushed. He could not stop the plan of God to bring the Son to bear. Why does the enemy have this power to cause so much pain and heartache, to try and destroy the redemptive line of Christ? Who gave him that authority? This is what's hard to take. When God created heaven and earth, then he created Adam and Eve, mankind. And what did he say to us? He said, I give you what? Dominion. I want you to order my creation have dominion over it, order it, name the animals, Uh, bring it, uh, I have made it good, now I want you to make it even better. by, by, By putting to work your hands and your heart and use your authority. And so we had this authority over creation. What did we do with all that authority? We gave it to Satan. And when God came, did He say to Satan, oh wait, you can't have that, I gave it to them. No, God honors what He did. He gave us authority, we gave it to Satan we often ask this question, why would God allow all these tragedies to occur? And that's, frankly, it's the wrong question. The question is, why did we allow it? Because when we fell, when we disobeyed God, we took all the authority He had to run of this planet through us, and we gave it to the enemy and said, okay, I guess you can have a piece of the action. And He has been running with it ever since. And Jesus comes to render powerless to render powerless the enemy that we empowered. So we empowered the enemy to have authority to bruise the heel of the Redeemer. And Jesus comes and says, it's time to revoke that authority. It's time to revoke that power, to to render you powerless. And how does He do this? Look with me at verse 18. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, that, uh, that phrase, that verse comes from Jeremiah 31, nine. It's nearly a direct quote. Let me try something with you to show you what's happening here. i finish this phrase. For God so loved the world. How did you know I was talking about John 3.16? It's football day, and you're going to see the guy at the end of the end zone, John 3.16. You know what's up, yeah. Because when you hear for God's so love of the world, you might immediately okay, that's John 3.16, I don't know what they're talking about. So so as soon as, for, for anyone who has spent any time in that time studying their uh, Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, you would have read uh, verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, and they would have said, that's Jeremiah 31. Now they didn't have the numbers there, but they would have known what he's talking about. Well, what's amazing about Jeremiah 31? Because it is the place where the new covenant is most clearly stated in the Older Testament. Jeremiah 31:31 says this, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. After what time? After a voice is heard in Ramah, after a mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. He says, after this time, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest i will forgive their wickedness i'll remember their sins no more so what what matthew is saying here because when when a writer in the new testament quotes from the old testament he assumes that we know the context he's saying what do you understand folks the new covenant is about to happen what's happening in bethlehem is the most clear sign we can understand the the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 where everyone will know God as an individual and His law will be written on our hearts. It's happening. It's occurring. The wailing of Bethlehem is a sure sign that our hope is so near. Matthew is trying to challenge us with. He wants us to understand this is, this is a sign, this is an understanding that now that this weeping has occurred, the new covenant is about to break forth through the work of Jesus Christ. Matthew doesn't shy away from this theme. In Matthew 24, he talks about the end of the world. And he says this in verse 7 of Matthew 24. I don't know if you have, anybody else has noticed in your Bibles. Somebody keeps shrinking the, the print size. <laughs> I've looked for the menu, how to make it bigger. But it, anyway, I'm trying to zoom in, but it's not working. Nation will rise against Nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. What are birth pains like? I have no idea, just to be honest. But I do know this they get closer and closer and closer and more intense until the baby comes. And Matthew is doing the same. He said, understand, we, we think of suffering and difficulty as meaning God is getting more distant. But the difficulty, and especially as revealed by what happened in Bethlehem, is showing that the covenant of Christ is even closer than it's ever been. So Jesus takes the the evil uh, uh, work of the devil and he says, no, find hope in this because I will redeem this and turn this into the hope of the new covenant. The enemy, by the power of the cross, has been rendered powerless. The enemy is completely defeated. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, All of the authority we had been given him has been revoked. He has zero authority. The covenant with us has been brought into place, and when we participate in that covenant through faith, we have our sins forgiven. Satan has no authority over our lives. But it doesn't uh, remove all suffering and difficulty, but Jesus would say in our suffering we have hope because in our suffering we know we're getting closer and closer to the point That Jesus will return. It's counterintuitive, but the Bible teaches this over and over and over again. Satan has lost, and the suffering we encounter is merely a sign saying he's almost here. Suffering in the Scripture ought to lead, uh, is desired by the Spirit to lead us to not disenchantment, but rather to hope. As we encounter suffering and difficulty, you say, oh man, he's, he's got to be almost here because this is horrible. Anybody gone through something so bad, you say, come Jesus today, right? That's an appropriate response because that's finding hope not in the circumstances being alleviated, but rather in the fulfillment of all things in Christ himself. Jesus renders powerless the enemy we empowered, so now suffering does not mean he is distant. Suffering means he is more near than he has ever been before. Jesus is coming. Now, if Jesus isn't coming, suffering is just horrible. So this is where faith and trust become critically important. If Jesus isn't coming, suffering is just awful. But if Jesus is coming, suffering leads us to hope. Say, okay, Jesus is, he is more near now than he has ever been before. Some of us are going through suffering. That's the last thing you want to hear, uh, and I understand that. But this is where the author took us. He said, look at what happened in Bethlehem. Awful. And then the author said, but pay attention. This is what Jesus said would happen in Jeremiah to lead us to the understanding the new covenant is here. And now in the times we live, we see suffering from time to time, only on weekdays and weekends. And as it gets nearer, and nearer and nearer and it becomes more contracted and more intense we say he's almost here he's he's almost here hope in the lord because jesus has rendered powerless the enemy that we once empowered verse 13 through 15 jesus lives our life flawlessly reminder we can't ruin what he's doing amen boy you really buy that one you can't ruin what he's doing amen that's awesome Not for lack of trying. Number two, uh, Jesus renders powerless the enemy we empowered. Suffering is now not hopeless. Suffering is a sign we have a sure hope. Jesus is coming. Finally, verses 19 through 23, Jesus brings glory from our shame. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus are living down in Egypt. Herod died, and an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph again in a dream. He probably napped a lot. Seems like Joseph is asleep most of the time in these stories. So, an angel of the Lord said to Joseph, Listen, the people who wanted to kill Jesus are dead, so return to Israel. So, he got up and he took the child with his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. And likely, he wanted to resettle where they had been before, in Bethlehem, which is Judea, uh, not too far from Jerusalem. But he heard Archelos, Arch, Arch Arch we'll just call him Arch. Um, He was reigning in Judea in place of Herod, and Archelos was not a nice guy. And Joseph wisely decided to go to Galilee, which is to the north of Jerusalem. If you look on a map, Galilee is near the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem is down uh, closer in uh, north and south, uh, anyway, to the Dead Sea. So he goes up to the area of Galilee uh, to settle. And when he got there, he decided to settle in Nazareth. And whenever we say Nazareth in the Bible, we're supposed to boo. Boo, Nazareth, it's horrible. So he goes from Egypt to Nazareth. I don't know what Joseph was thinking when, when the angel showed up in Egypt, and the angel shows up and says, take Jesus back to Israel, but if, if he was like most of us, he'd be thinking, okay, now pay off his time. It's happening. I'm going to take my son to Jerusalem. We'll get a nice spread. He'll be king of the Jews. Uh, you know, maybe I'll get a nice stateroom. And I can only uh, perceive that because that's what happened with every single person Jesus encountered who sought to follow him, including the disciples. Jesus, who among us is, your, is going to be the greatest? Jesus, which of us will sit at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? And he routinely says over and over and over, please follow me to death. So as they get up to Jerusalem, Joseph begins to feel a little bit of disappointment because Archelaus is ruling in Jerusalem and he knows he can't live there because this guy was barely any better than Herod, just a little better than Herod. So now he has to go to Galilee. And Galilee's bad. Jerusalem is where the sophisticated, intelligent, powerful, um, the cultural center of Israel is. Galilee is the backwoods Uneducated Backwards Unsophisticated Uncultured They didn't speak in a snooty British accent I'm certain they did in Jerusalem, right? So he's like, "All right, fine We'll go to Galilee Find a nice place But the the southernmost part of Galilee So we'll go to Galilee But the part that's absolutely as close to Jerusalem as we can get, right? He gets to Galilee Listen, Nazareth Let's put it this way the people in Jerusalem sneered at Galilee. Those backwoods, ne'er do wells. I'm sure they said ne'er do wells. No, nope, but we don't use that enough in the common vernacular. Try to incorporate that this week. Take that with you. Those backwoods, ne'er do wells. The people in Galilee talked that way about Nazareth. I mean, that's how bad Nazareth is. I mean, the, if Joseph had dreams of grandeur of, and influence and importance, when he found himself living in Nazareth, those were all dashed. They come out of Egypt to Nazareth, not for glory, but for lowliness. Jesus brings glory from our shame. Jesus, or Joseph may be expecting better, ends up in Nazareth. Everyone looked down on Galilee, and Galilee looked down on the people of Nazareth. Look at the last verse of chapter two. So was fulfilled what was, excuse me, said through the prophets: "He will be called a Nazarene." A quick search in your Bible dictionary software will reveal there's no verse in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. Because Nazarene here is not being used. As a geographical reference, it's being used as an adjective. He will be called a Nazarene, and he said it with a sneer. We do this all the time. As my buddy Joe, he's a Cowboys fan. He believed they won eleven games in a row. It's unbelievable. Why, oh Lord? Do the evil prosper? I just lost half the congregation. Sometimes the gospel hurts. Okay, folks? Okay. All right. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. You can turn there or just listen. I'm going to read it and show you kind of what what the author, Matthew, is doing here. Isaiah 53. I'm going to read quite a bit of this, so stay with me, but it's important is what Isaiah says. Just one, just one second. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Listen, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was a Nazarene. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him a Nazarene, stricken By God, smitten by Him and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He didn't open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth." All of that speaks precisely of what is thought of as a Nazarene, a no account, despised, considered nothing. And that's precisely what Jesus was in the eyes of those there. He was despised, but uh, He took up our infirmities. Jesus' intention was to take the The shame of of what it means to be lowly and despised and a a nothing and to reveal His glory in it, to take the lowliness of of the Nazarene and have His glory revealed as the Nazarene sacrificed and raised again. The lowliness of the people of Israel revealed in the power of God in Christ The loneliness of all of those who were humiliated and shamed. There's a big difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I feel bad about something I've done. Shame says, I feel bad about who I am. And this is Jesus as a Nazarene, despised, bearing the shame of all who would say, I'm not just someone who has done bad things, I am someone who is bad. And Jesus, in His life as the Nazarene and walking in our stead, He says, not one of our sorrows will be wasted. Not one of our shames will be allowed to fall to the ground. Jesus walks to the shame of what it means to be a Nazarene, and He takes all of the shame of the people of Israel, and He takes all of the shame of all who would follow Him, and He brings it to a beautiful conclusion, as the man of sorrows crucified, and the glorious king who is resurrected. Let me illustrate it another way, different from maybe the Etch-A-Sketch. I don't know if you, some of you knit or sew. My understanding, though, is one of the best ways to store your yarn is to jumble it into a giant ball and throw it into a basket, and then come back to it three years later, and when you pick it up by one string, it comes out in a single ball, Right? So, Jesus takes this yarn, which is our shame-filled lives, completely tangled and jumbled, and you say, you know what, the best thing for Him to do would be to chuck that ball in the garbage and just write a new story for us. But what's funny is Jesus doesn't do that. He takes that ball of jumbled mess of shame, and He weaves through it His life of redemption his life of sacrifice, his life of walking a life of shame as a Nazarene, and a single uh, cord of redemption is weaved through that entire ball of yarn. And At the end of all time, that ball of yarn is just going to fall open, and the whole thing is going to be a picture of God's glory. And we'll say, what? How in the world did he do that? Not a single moment of our shame and our despair will have been wasted every single bit of every part of our life will be all tied together by the redemptive work of Christ and we'll say, how in the world is that even possible? Because Jesus intends to bring glory from our shame. And you look at some of the things in your life that bring you great shame and you say, there is no way to bring glory from that. And Jesus says, challenge accepted. You will praise me one day when you see what I'm doing with your life. I'm going to take the mess of your shame and guilt and I'm going to turn it into a tapestry for the glory of God and when you gaze upon it in the future, you will behold His glory. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says it this way. (coughs) Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus, not ashamed to call us brothers, he says this, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again he says this, I will put my trust in him, here I am, and the children God has given me. So Jesus come and, and walks the life of a Nazarene, lower than the angels, a life of shame, He dies and and redeems all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, raises us from the dead, and one day he will stand in the presence of God and take all of that shame and all of that guilt and say, these are my people. God, look what you did through me in them. He will stand in the presence of God and call our names and say, I am not ashamed to call you brothers. I walked a life of shame so that your shame is redeemed, and I experience no shame in saying, come into my father's house. Look at the tapestry i have created with you the fact of the matter is this about the life of christ and his life in us his glory is most profound in our lowliness his glory is made most profound in his lowliness and his glory is most profound in our loneliness Did i say loneliness Lowliness is what I mean his glory is made m- most profound most beautiful in our lowliness uh, think of it this way what if we were almost perfect what if we were almost perfect in fact we were so almost perfect he didn't really have to die he just had to have a really bad day I mean how much glory does he receive for that Let's see, this is what's kooky, and I don't even have another word to describe it. I know that's a, pr- a very complicated theological term. This is what is, is kooky, is he actually received the most glory out of the, de- the degree of our lowliness. But for some reason, we spend the rest of our lives trying to not be lowly, trying to earn God's favor, impress the people around us. Maybe I, I need God just to make up the difference. And Jesus' intention is to bring himself the most glory from this... The degree of our lowliness. Some of us as Christians have a spiritual gift of feeling guilty and shameful. It's a spiritual gift of regret. I'm being facetious, there isn't one, but we're good at it. It's hard to tell some days if we're better at it than the Catholics. I think we, it's neck and neck at this point, isn't it? but we, we sometimes predicate the entirety of our Christian lives, the, the entirety of our Christian devotion and our faith and our duty on the avoidance of guilt and shame or re, uh, repaying God back for bad things we've done to overcome guilt and shame. And Jesus is basically saying here, by taking the name Nazarene, I am going to bring great glory to myself through my own shame and by carrying your shame into glory. And and really what he's saying is, how do you bring greatest glory to God? By coming to terms with the reality of your guilt and shame and your lowliness. It's not trying to measure up, but it's understanding that the gospel redeemed us from where we actually are, which is lowly. It is a good thing to have the Spirit of God reveal the brokenness of our hearts. I, you can't imagine doing this, but imagine this, that God makes known to you some really awful sin. I mean, not as bad as rooting for the Cowboys, but something really bad. I'm sorry for the half of you that I'm offending. I mean, a lot of times when we discover something really bad about our sin, and usually we already know about it, we just don't want anybody else to. Uh, so when I, use, when I mean we discover something bad about ourselves, it usually means our friend found out. And so now we're like Low. And so now, okay, how long do I need to spend in this low, mopey position to pay God back for how bad I've been? Now, this is what we learn from the Bible. Jesus loves the massive comeback. And so, if you're down 50 nothing. He's like, all right, good, I get to score 51 points and knock this out of the park. And then we discover something horrible about ourselves, and and Jesus finds out we're not down 50 to nothing, we're down 1,000 to nothing. He goes, I'm going to score 1,001 points and I'll receive all the more glory. See, when when, when sin is revealed to us, we think now Jesus' hands are are bound and he can't use us. And he goes, are you kidding me? Now I get to have my glory revealed even more so in you. I, I, I would say it this way. It, it should bring great delight to our eyes to bring to God and say, God, I, have, I need your glory to show up again because look how bad it is. And Jesus will redeem it and he's going to tie it all into this beautiful tapestry and say, I will use your brokenness for my greatest glory. Jesus lives our life flawlessly. You can't ruin what he's doing. Jesus renders powerless the enemy we have powered. And so suffering doesn't bring despair, suffering brings hope. Jesus brings glory from our shame. And so therefore in him we can do something crazy. We can rest and say, God and I are cool. We're good. No, we're good. We're square. I can rest. Let me just sum up what we're talking about here with a couple of things. Jesus did something interesting in coming here and being born here and becoming a man here, is Jesus is seeking to redeem us here. Jesus is seeking to redeem our life here. Jesus did not come to redeem us to therefore take us immediately out of here. Many of you have noticed when you get, got saved, you weren't immediately taken to heaven. Or perhaps you thought you were and you think this is heaven. I hate to disappoint you. You're not home yet. Jesus intended, His work of redemption is intended to redeem our life here versus Him redeeming our life and immediately taking us to glory and saying this is some kind of holding pattern. Jesus wants our redemption in Him to be worked out in this life. So let me put it this way using a popular phrase. What would Jesus do? You've heard this phrase, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And I think that's a really good phrase, and I think it's a good reminder when we have decisions to make to think what are the values of Christ and His redemptive purposes, but I want to add something to it from what we're learning here this morning, if, you, if I may. Do you mind? When we think sometimes what would Jesus do, we look at our situation, and we want to kind of extract ourselves out. We're going to go, we're in the bench now. We'll put Jesus in, and we'll say, okay, what would Jesus do? Right, And we're going to watch, you Now we're going to watch as spectators and see what Jesus would be like in our situation. And what Jesus is doing in redeeming our life, this is what the phrase should be. What would Jesus do if he were me? If he, were, if he was redeeming my life, if he was taking my experience, my situations, my hang-ups, my advantages, my, my bents, my personality, my uh, shame history, my, my guilt, my sadness, my joy. What if Jesus were redeeming all things? So it's not just what would Jesus do. What would Jesus do if he were living his perfect life through me in particular? And this is what the Bible talks about us having a union with Christ. He doesn't want us to just simply in a robot fashion sort of figure out what Jesus would do, but what would Jesus do if he were working his redemptive purposes through a person like me? And guess what? I'm different than you, right? Right? And you're different than the person next to you. So the work of Jesus in you will be in union with with who you are. And so we start thinking, well, what would happen? What would my life look like? Not if I was just merely asking, what is Jesus up to? But what does my life look like if I am redeemed by Christ to do His work? What would Jesus do if He were in my shoes and He had my bents and my advantages and hang-ups and personality. Well, this is why I was talking before at the, at the beginning about a, a great suspense movie. Because now all of a sudden you say, well, well how is he going to do that? Well, how could Jesus use somebody like me to do his redemptive work in a broken world through a broken person? How could he possibly do that? When, when I say Jesus wants to save the world through you, does that create any tension in you? Like maybe you don't think you can handle it? If it doesn't, you're amazing. When I hear Jesus wants to save the world through me, I say, you know, uh, you might want to pick somebody else. How is he going to do that? Three three ways he's going to do that. Number one, you've got to understand, you can't ruin what he is doing in your life. You understand, you do not have the power to ruin what God is doing in your life. If you could ruin what Jesus was doing in your life, who are you? That would make you God. I just want to let you in on a little secret. You're not God. You cannot ruin what Jesus is going to do. I'm not saying you will like what Jesus is going to do, but you cannot mess it up. Because you cannot take away from the glory of Christ raised from the dead. Not possible. Israel couldn't do it. You can't do it. Think about it this way. Has anybody ever read the Old Testament? It comes just before Matthew. Matthew the whole section of your Bible back there. Uh, have you noticed that it didn't go well? Remember that one part when they did something right? Me either. <laughs> and we tend to think that the, the history of Israel was this downward trajectory. And, no, it was never up. The only time that it was an upward trajectory when God showed himself faithful to David and Solomon. And even then, it was a little squirrely, wasn't it? So look at all of the sin history of Israel in the Old Testament, up to and including child sacrifice. Were they able to derail the plans of God to send Jesus to die on the cross? No, that's pretty impressive. I mean, they were trying to derail it on purpose, and they couldn't stop it. So do we think we can stop the plan of God in our life because we think we're lousy Christians? I can be honest, that's a silly notion on our part. That somehow God has set in, oh, heaven. Boy, I did not see Him doing that. Oh my lands, that was an, oh, Holy Spirit Plan C. I had no idea. He doesn't do that. We cannot derail. We cannot ruin what God is doing in our life. If Israel couldn't prevent Jesus from showing up in Bethlehem, we cannot prevent the work of Christ in our life. How is Jesus going to work out His work in us? He will make His hope known to us through difficulty and suffering. He will not bring suffering because He is displeased. He will bring suffering to our lives because He wants our hope to be renewed in Him. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. He is coming, and He is coming soon, and the birth pains, you're gonna get, birth pains are going to get closer and more intense, and the suffering is to generate in us great hope. He's almost here. And if your knee-jerk reaction when suffering hits you upside the head is not to say, praise Jesus for more hope, welcome to the human race, but ask him for the hope anyway. Jesus, this is great suffering. I don't understand it. It's lame. If you don't know how to pray through suffering, open the book of Psalms. There's lots of really good ones in there on how to pray through suffering. God, I need your hope because I know this suffering needs to generate hope in me. Show me your faithfulness. Finally, I think most helpful for many of us, His glory is most profound in our lowliness. At some point, we need to switch gears in our mind as Christians to think God is glorified in how fancy and good we are. God is most glorified in how cleaned up we are and how we can do the act as well. We, We know the dance. We know the moves. We know the words. God is most glorified in our lowliness. Maybe you have that Friend. Always having issues, you know. Oh man, I don't want to call them up because it's just going to be more of their issues. Call them up. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I need God today. I don't know what I'm going to do. You realize God is glorified in their lowliness, their desperate need for God drives us nuts, but God doesn't run out of stuff to give them. He is revealed in their lowliness. We think God is revealed in how we keep it all together. Look, I'm going through all this stuff, but I've got my stuff together. I'm good. I trust the Lord. But God is glorified in our lowliness. Rest. Rest. It is finished, he says on the cross. Not it's mostly finished. It is finished, he says on the cross. He's raised from the dead three days later. His glory is certain and more certain than anything we could imagine. And he will bring it out in you. Not in your greatness, but in our lowliness. Jesus lives our life flawlessly. We can't ruin what he's doing. Jesus renders powerless the enemy we empowered, so suffering brings hope instead of defeat. And Jesus brings glory from our shame, and so now we can rest as He is glorified in our lowliness. Will you stand with me? I want to take a moment to pray before we sing one final worship song. And then give you a moment or two in quiet prayer where you stand to respond to God in faith.